Word of our Lord from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Now this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth, before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of, uh, of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there also. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is the Tigris. It is the one which goes toward the, toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever God called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And so Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they were naked, both of them, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word to our hearts and to our minds. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear from you in these moments together and help us to walk toward the sound of your voice. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
we celebrate work. Obviously, it being Labor Day weekend, you're well aware of that, or at least well reminded of that. And it's interesting the way that we celebrate work on a holiday like Labor Day. We celebrate it by grilling out and eating. Some of us eating lots. Some of us, we grill out hamburgers, hot dogs. Others might go for ribs or uh, uh, chicken. But that's, that's very typical of a holiday like Labor Day. We celebrate by enjoying time with family and friends. We get together with folks. Some of them we get together with often. Some of them not so often. Maybe we get the whole family together, cousins and aunts and uncles that you know, don't get to see each other on a weekly basis. We celebrate by watching baseball games. And fortunately enough, since college football started back up, football games. Ole Miss is playing Monday night. Looking forward to it. Hope they can rise to the occasion. We celebrate also by resting. And simply not working. We cease from our labors, most of us, on Labor Day. We take a bit of a Sabbath. A time of rest. A time of walking away from our work. My my most vivid memory of celebrating Labor Day when I was a kid is not some big party where the family got together. It's not some big celebration or... You know, a lot of grilling out. I don't honestly remember all that much about Labor Days in particular as a kid growing up. But I do remember the most, the most vivid picture in my mind of Labor Day. I was probably 13, maybe, maybe 14. And uh, I was at my friend's house and we were raking leaves all day. And the only way we could, uh, the only way we could, uh, kind of make the pain a little bit more bearable as we were making, you know, all those ironic jokes about celebrating labor by doing labor. It's the only time I ever remember really working hard on Labor Day, and that's the only Labor Day that I can really vividly remember. But I remember we were raking leaves for what seemed it seemed like all day. It was probably all morning, you know, done around lunch, and then we got to play in the afternoon. I, I shouldn't have spent the night at his house the night before. I thought we were going to have fun. Instead, his mom and dad put us to work on Labor Day. But that's kind of the exception to the rule. The the rule is usually that we celebrate work by ceasing from it. You know, far too many of us dislike going to work. Some even hate it. A recent study shows that 52.3% of Americans are unhappy with their work. 52.3%. Now this unhappiness has been trending upward for several decades now. Very consistently, that number has risen and risen and risen and risen. So that just two years ago, 52.3% of Americans are unhappy with their work. Perhaps this helps explain why we change jobs on average every four to six years throughout our working lives. Most Americans will go through 15 to 16 jobs over the course of their working years. Far too many of us dislike going to work. 
And unfortunately, some even hate it. Let's step back from work just for a moment and think about stories. The way all good stories go is that something is set up, it becomes upset and then must be reset. You've got the setting, you've got the problem, you've got the resolution. The setting, the conflict, the resolution. That's how all good stories go. The way the greatest story ever told goes is that God creates the world, mankind falls, and must then be redeemed. So you've got set up, upset, and reset. God creates, mankind sins, God intervenes and redeems. As we prepare to celebrate tomorrow as Labor Day, let's together reflect upon three affirmations that we find in Scripture concerning the beauty and nature of work because work is actually tied into this great story that God is telling, this story of creation, fall, and redemption. As you might have guessed, and as would be appropriate, let's start back at the beginning. The Scriptures tell us that in the beginning, God was at work. The Scriptures affirm the goodness of creation. God made all things, and as He's making all things, He is constantly giving that refrain, that motif, if you will. It is good. The world was created that we might enjoy it. We speak of recreation, having fun, playing sport, enjoying life. And the world was created as good so that we might also steward it. We've been given not just the opportunity for recreation, which is a good, but also the responsibility as stewards of God in His world. And that's a good thing. That's a part of the way God created the world. He created it not just as some fine-tuning watchmaker who lets it just go on about, but He wove into the tapestry of creation this sense of shared life and shared responsibility where what you and I do affects others and affects the created order. And so we're called to enjoy, we're called to steward, we're called to this great vocation of recreation and the other of responsibility. That's why you find amazement in the words of the psalmist. As Wheezy read Psalm 8 this morning, we're reminded that when we look at the heavens, when we look at the work of God's fingers, we ought to be amazed because creation ought to inspire in us worship of God. Wow, Lord, how excellent is your name in all of the earth. 
in all of this world that you have made, your name is amazing. Creation ought to direct our eyes upward toward God. For it was crafted by His hands. It was fine-tuned by His fingertips. In the beginning, God was at work. The Scriptures also tell us That before the fall, not after it, not as a consequence of it, but before the fall, man was at work. In fact, the first thing God gave Adam was a job. To be his understudy, his protege. Adam was given the task of tending the garden and given the other task of naming all of the animals. God put Adam to work. Not to abuse him, not to punish him, not to keep him in his place. In fact, you could say to elevate his place, not just as as a piece of creation, but as the pinnacle of creation. The one who bears God's image in creation is given what Blaise Pascal called the dignity of causality. We can do things and they are then done. The world is changed when we work. We were created to be creative. We were made to do with our hands and with our heads those things that otherwise remain undone. The image of God in us gives dignity to the work that we're given to do. Whether that work would involve building homes, whether that work would involve plumbing toilets, or whether that work would involve sitting at a desk, crunching numbers, standing before students, delivering lectures, or whether that work would even involve writing novels or poetry. Because being creative reflects the fact that we were created. It reflects God's image in the world. Now the fall of Adam, of course, had effects on our labor. Just as Adam and in him all of mankind became damaged and hardened by the fall, so also did work become disappointing and disheartening. The labor that mankind was given, the job that Adam was bestowed by God, became a point of frustration, a point of anxiety, a point of time wasted and energy ill spent. Reading further on into Genesis 3, we read that God told Adam, you will now work by the sweat of your brow. Those gardens you plant, that vegetation you're looking forward to harvesting, 
It will turn into thorns and thistles. You will hurt and you'll grow angry because of your work. As Christians, we see work primarily in two spheres. We think of the sphere of vocation. We ask the question, what am I to do with my life? But we also think of the sphere of ministry. What am I to do in and through the church? And in both of these spheres, vocation and ministry, we ought to bear in mind a few things. We ought to bear in mind the dignity of all work. You know, there's no such thing as what we would call menial labor. The most menial of tasks still have dignity as we bring dignity to them. We ought to keep also in mind the the unity that Paul speaks of in diversity. When he's talking about the church as a body, a, a, a single unit with many parts, we ought to be reminded that there are no parts too small for the body. There are no tasks too small for dignity. There's a mutual overlap of these two ideas that all work can have dignity and that no parts are too small. No jobs are insignificant. Those two ideas overlap and share together in these two spheres of vocation and ministry. Typically when we think of no parts being too small, we automatically go to the church. No task, no responsibility is insignificant. But also in the way the world works, no job, no part is insignificant. You might remember that in the story of the Exodus, Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And as they crossed the Red Sea that God miraculously parted before them, they make their way to Mount Sinai and God gives them His law. They exchange covenantal right with God. And they are then His people. And God begins to lay out before them not just the ten words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, but He begins to line out for them what covenantal relationship with Him is to look like in everyday life and in worship life. And as He gets to the details of what the tabernacle, His dwelling place among them, is to look like, there's... There's, I would call it obscure because it, se- it, it does stand out quite oddly. It's just a few verses there. But when you read it, you're kind of stunned by what's being said. But God is explaining to Moses and His people all that is to be done for the tabernacle. And when He begins talking about those who are going to be doing the woodwork, the metalwork, and the sewing and embroidering of fabric work for the tabernacle, 
the way he speaks of those three jobs, which we would think, you know, you're just working with your hands, you're building stuff, you're shaping stuff, you're sewing stuff. We wouldn't think all that much about it, but God speaks so highly of it. In fact, he speaks about how God's spirit is using these men. He names them. And he says, he says that he has given them a special ability to work with their hands. There's dignity, there's beauty. In all jobs, in all work that is done to the glory of God. And so if work is God's intention for us, and therefore it's a good for us, how ought we to work? I want to just suggest three quick pieces of, of not advice, but reminders for us when we consider the work that God has given us to do as bearers of His image. We ought to work much. Now there's the chance of that we that we run of overdoing it. So we ought not overwork, but we ought to work much. Not be looking for opportunities to avoid work, but looking for opportunities where we can work, looking for opportunities where we can work more, work better. Not only ought we to work much, but we also ought to work hard. And there's, there again, the chance that we overdo that, that, that we become folks who crush others, who, who, who overwhelm others with the hard work that, it, that we expect of them. But in our work, we ought to take it seriously and work hard. We ought to also work well. Do the best that we're able to do. The Apostle Paul said that we ought to do all things as unto Jesus. Knowing that ultimately all of our labors are directed toward Him, not others. And so in all that we do, we ought to work well. Avoiding the, 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 the danger of obsessing over our work, but making sure to work well. Chuck Colson used to say that the only Christian job is a job well done. As image bearers of God, as understudies of our great Creator, we ought to take pride in our labor. We ought to take pride in those things that we do that apart from our doing are otherwise left undone. The scriptures tell us that in the beginning God was at work. They tell us that before the fall man was at work. But they tell us also that for our redemption... 
Christ was at work. In the sphere of theology, we use a couple of terms when studying Christ. We speak of His person and His work. His person having to do with who He is and His work having to do with what He's done. In particular, what He's done for our salvation. And as we move through the field of Christology, that that field of theology that focuses specifically upon the person and work of Christ, we speak of His incarnation, His passion, His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension. And in doing so, we're we're dealing with His, His living, His dying, His rising again. And we speak of it as His work. For He was at work in our behalf. He was laboring so that He might bring us back into fellowship with our Father. In the act of redemption... The greatest story ever told comes full circle. It comes back even to a creator walking into a garden. You remember God's presence in the Garden of Eden. As Adam and Eve took of the fruit and disobeyed God. God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day and He asks a very poignant question. Where art thou? On the night that He was betrayed, Christ leads His disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as He steps further into the garden, away from them to pray, and as He is weeping tears of blood and pleading with His Father, if there's any way to redeem these people without this that is to come, You can almost hear Christ as He is staring down the suffering that brings our redemption. Realizing the answer to that question, Adam, where art thou? Oh, here you are. In pain and in toil. The Garden of Gethsemane gives way to the Garden of Easter's empty tomb as the risen Christ is able to declare to those women who have gathered at the tomb to care for His body. 
Here am I. Don't yet cling to me. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end in that garden. In fact, the revelation tells us of yet another garden. Its name is the New Jerusalem. And it descends from heaven to earth. It's like Eden, but it's fully redeemed and fully redemptive. We're told that in that garden, the New Jerusalem, that a river passes through it. And that on either side of that river are the tree of life, which bear fruit throughout all seasons. And the text tells us that 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 tree, that fruit of that tree, is there for the healing of the nations. The one who declares, Behold, I make all things new, is the one in whose image we've been created. in whose image we've been called to work. And who through His work has brought us back into fellowship, has won our redemption, and is able to remake us in His image. As Christians, we ought to celebrate work. We ought to celebrate work for the great dignity that it is that God has entrusted to us the opportunity to work like Him, to labor like Him, to work in celebration of the world that He has made, and to work for the sake of redeeming and reconciling those who have wandered away from Him. We ought to be mindful of the great work that was done in our behalf so that we might know God, so that we might find life in Him. Let's pray.